0: From the High Center Studios of Messiah College, the nexus of transatlantic currents in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to
1: episode 36 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast. Today's episode is focused on the 18th century Atlantic world. We are going to explore how human beings moved within this world and used such travel to shape their identities. In the last 30 years, the Atlantic world has dominated the study of early American history, especially British American history. As the historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto once put it, during this period, the traffic in goods, ideas, and people made it possible to think of a single civilization spanning the ocean. The culturally distant eastern seaboard colonies founded in the early and mid-17th century became increasingly more connected to Europe as time went on. My graduate school advisor, Ned Landsman, described the transition from colonials that is, people living in remote outposts of the British Empire, to provincials, men and women fully integrated into the empire. By the eve of the American Revolution, the British North American colonies were serving the economic interests of the empire. They were awash in British consumer goods. They were exposed to British ideas about political liberty and Protestant religion like never before through books, and other forms of print. The Atlantic was shrinking, not literally, but figuratively, and in an imagined sense. Of course, the Atlantic world was not just a British phenomenon. The Atlantic Ocean tied together the destinies of Africans, Latin Americans, and people living in other parts of Europe. A focus on the Atlantic world has challenged a view of history that we usually describe as Whig. This is an approach to American history that sees the story of the 13 colonies solely in terms of the coming of the American Revolution. Since the late 18th century, when the first American histories began to be written, Whig historians have dominated the field. The important actors in the stories they tell were those who had some impact on the coming of the new nation. Human beings living in North America are only important, according to the Whig historians, if their lives point in some way towards 1776 and the creation of a unique and, dare I say, exceptional American nation. Historians of the Atlantic world know better than to embrace such Whig pieties They know that the colonies were born in a constant engagement with the larger world on the other side of the proverbial pond. In fact, one might even argue that American independence was impossible without these connections. America was born as part of an international community of people, people of all colors, people enslaved and free, and people who moved within this Atlantic community. Drew, you're a grad student in early American history. How does
0: this idea of the Atlantic world shape your work? Considering that Lehigh's history department has a sharp Atlantic focus, of course, this is a, a history yeah. department who's one of, one of our most famous emeritus professors is uh, Lawrence Henry Gibson, the, yeah. one of the founders of, 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 of one of the first Atlantic challenges to this Whig narrative, uh, the Imperial School of uh, American History. So... Yeah, the Atlantic paradigm has been a focus of uh, my writing, my scholarship, uh, my training, and now, now my teaching. Further, I'm an ethno meaning I turn my focus towards the lives of colonized indigenous people within transatlantic imperial and colonial contexts.
1: So you just told me before the episode started, Drew, that you are three weeks away from your comprehensive exams. I don't know if the mic is picking up the sound of my teeth chattering. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I assume you have a lot of books related to the Atlantic world on your comps list. Am
0: I right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have three fields that are specifically Atlantic-focused. So I'm French Atlantic, Spanish Atlantic, and then colonial uh, British Atlantic. So so. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Drew,
1: and... Give me some titles
0: all right. well, I, i'll I'll try to make these good recommendations for everyone who wants to go pick one of these up. Yeah, give give us something <laughs> don't give us the heavy monographs, the theoretical
1: stuff. Give us something that our listeners might be able to pick up to learn something about the Atlantic world.
0: well, what, one modern classic that anytime friends or family ask me, you know, oh, what's a good book for me to read? One that I always recommend is uh, Daniel Richter's Facing East from Indian Country, which yeah. has really changed a lot of the ways. Many of us as historians even just y- linguistically frame frame our studies, right? This is the whole idea that that we as historians shouldn't only be studying Indians from a European perspective, but also right. studying Europe from an Indian perspective.
1: Now, I can't remember... Colonial America was the one course you didn't take with me. Is that right? That's correct. Was it like 15 years ago we're talking now. But I've been assigning Richter. It teaches very, very well. Some of you social studies teachers out there, it's a nice book to read. You're not going to assign it to your students, but it's a nice book to read to give you some perspective on this kind of Atlantic world the way Drew is describing it.
0: Uh, Another good one, uh, especially for those who are interested in the history of Christianity, is uh, Sylvia Fry and Mm. Betty Woods come shouting to Zion. One of the neat things they do in in this book is they're talking about the formation of that distinct African-American Christianity that emerges in the 19th century, especially. But they're doing it in comparison with the American South and the Caribbean right bringing yeah. those two regions into conversation and saying that you can't really understand african american christianity unless you're engaging with both oftentimes in a for american historians it's just a story of the american yeah. south
1: i'm actually encouraged that you're reading that book cuz actually i read that book on my and my
0: comps too yeah so it's got some staying power yeah. and then one that is highly relevant to the subject of this episode uh, is uh, a book called, and actually it's really important for my own personal research, but it's a book called Indians and Colonists at the Crossroads of Empire, the Albany Congress of 1754. I think I know who the author of that book is. Yeah, that author is today's guest, Timothy Shannon, although we're going to be talking about a newer work of his. Uh, this uh, Indians and Colonists at the Crossroads of Empire is still, still one that's pretty important for me because it, it, show, it shows how the Albany Congress, which is this... For those of us who are familiar with that narrative of American history, and you brought up the, the, the idea of Whig history, right? Yeah. that the Albany Congress is the first time the colonies came together, right, right. and they started to form this new American identity, not just a Pennsylvania or a New York identity. Right. But the thing Shannon argues, and I think quite convincingly, is actually that's not what that meeting was about at all. Right. There's no real anticipation of future unity. It's actually just a lot of colonies who are really, really concerned about being invaded from the north by the French and their Indian allies so they have this meeting with with uh especially the Hodenosaunee in upstate New York and they try to bring all of their energies together just so that they have a kind of united front. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that is not some kind of proto-national right. you know
1: meeting there. They do want to come together but for very different reasons, exactly. right? For mostly for protection and trade.
0: So uh, um, how about you? Do you see any of your work in an Atlantic world context?
1: I, I don't know. I think my first book, uh, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, my book about Philip Vickers Fithian, this ordinary farmer in New Jersey, I really place him in a kind of enlightenment, kind of transatlantic world of ideas. Uh, the Scottish Enlightenment was deeply influential on him. you know. And part of my argument is that you could be cosmopolitan. And Tim Shannon will talk about this a little later on in the episode. You can be cosmopolitan even from a kind of local, rural, uh, agrarian world of southern New Jersey that Fithian um, talked about. So, yeah, I was very deeply influenced by Atlantic history, especially as it relates to religion and ideas. Um, You know, my book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, was really addressed to a more national audience. But as I wrote about the founders, it's hard not to talk about them in terms of the way these sort of transatlantic, at least in the British world, kind of influenced their lives my american bible society book is very uh i think it's very representative of what we tom bender and some others have referred to as the sort of internationalization of American history. I mean, there's chapters in that book on China, on Mexico, on you know, so I'm thinking about this uniquely American organization, the American Bible Society that had really impossible to understand it without its kind of global connection. So yeah, I've, I've dabbled in it. I don't consider myself a historian of the Atlantic world, like our guest today, Tim Shannon, but, um, but it's hard not to, uh, you know, if you're a responsible early American historian, uh, you need to be able to, think about your your uh, subjects in a kind of broader context. Um, and speaking of that, we've already mentioned our guest, but our guest today, Timothy Shannon of Gettysburg College, is one of our leading scholars and sophisticated thinkers about the Atlantic world. He's going to tell us a fascinating story about a life lived in the British Atlantic world uh, as he introduces us to Peter Williamson, a transatlantic traveler who was called at the, at the end of his life, an Indian King. So I don't want to give too much away, but this is a very interesting uh, new book that Shannon has out. So I'm looking forward to this interview and I hope you enjoy it. We've had a, Drew, we've had a really great season here. Season four uh, on the way of improving leads home. Still have a few more episodes to go, but we can always, of course, continue. We continue to need your support. We could use your support in a variety of different ways. So Drew, tell our listeners how they can connect with us.
0: The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to RecordedHistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. I think, especially this week, what better time than now to highlight the Explorers Podcast, which highlights Mm. uh, the long history of global exploration. Check them out at ExplorersPodcast.com. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. And the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And consider giving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. We'll be talking with Timothy Shannon in a few minutes, but first, you have your own story of a life lived in the 18th century Atlantic world, John.
1: It's that time of year for college professors. Time to select textbooks for the fall semester. This fall, I am once again teaching my course on Colonial America at Messiah College, and once again I will be assigning The Infortunate, the voyage and adventures of William Morley, an indentured servant. I like Morley's 18th century account of life in the British Atlantic world because this indentured servant is, in many ways, the anti-Ben Franklin. As Morley's 20th century editors Susan Klepp and Billy Smith write, 18th century America has been called the age of Ben Franklin, an era best characterized by the values expressed in his autobiography, and by his incredibly successful career. Yet Franklin was only one of several million inhabitants of the North American colonies, and by his own account, he was both exceptionally hardworking and unusually fortunate. William Morley, on the other hand, did not have such luck. He arrived at roughly the same time as Franklin, but he did not quote unquote make it in America. In fact, he ended up going back home, largely a failure. Though not every arrival to the British American shores returned to Europe, very few ended up like Ben Franklin. Morley's story makes us rethink the possibility of the American dream in the colonial period and reveals how one man navigated the Atlantic world. When Morley's father died in England, he left no money to his son. When his mother remarried, Morley was left in the lurch. Flat broke and searching for a lucky break, he came to Philadelphia as an indentured servant on December 26, 1729. Upon arrival, he sold his coat for a quart of rum and his tie for sixpence, and used the money to buy some bread and a quart of cider. He was eventually sold to a clockmaker and goldsmith in Burlington, New Jersey on a four-year indenture. Morley found a boat to ferry him across the Delaware River to Burlington. He got drunk on the trip, claiming that this was the first time he had, quote unquote, experienced the strength of rum. It did not take long before Morley grew tired of his work in Burlington. He quarreled with his master and eventually tried to escape. He didn't get far. Morley was caught and placed in prison until he promised to finish the term of his indenture. Ben Franklin, he was not. In the last year of his indenture, Morley was sent to labor at an ironworks in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Here, he wrote, I had many a merry day. He added, quote, sometimes I acted the blacksmith. At other times, I have worked in the water, stark naked among water snakes. Sometimes I was a cow hunter in the woods. And sometimes I got drunk for joy that my work was ended, unquote. After Morley's indenture was complete, he was set free to pursue his own American dream. It did not go well. He could not find steady work as a clockmaker in Philadelphia. He spent weeks wandering around the Pennsylvania and New Jersey countryside where he had run-ins with wild animals, including one particular scary encounter with a panther, and he slept in haylofts. Eventually, Morley got back on a ship and returned home in an attempt to reunite with his mother and her new family. We ambitious and self-improving Americans do not look highly on a guy who openly admitted that, quote, I neglect to improve my talents, always preferring the present time to the future, so that all these advantages were bestowed on me to no purpose, unquote. But Morley's story was not unique. The best poor man's country in the world did not always deliver on its promises.
0: Our guest today is Timothy Shannon, professor of history and chair of the history department at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Professor Shannon teaches courses in early American, Native American, and British history at Gettysburg. He is the author of seven books, including Iroquois Diplomacy on the Early American Frontier, Penguin, 2008, and Indians and Colonists at the Crossroads of Empire, the Albany Congress of 1754, Cornell, 2000. The latter of which won the Dixon Ryan Fox Prize from the New York State Historical Association and the Distinguished Book Award from the Society of Colonial Wars. Today we will be talking to Professor Shannon about his more recent book, Indian Captive, Indian King, Peter Williamson in America and Britain, published in 2018 with Harvard University Press.
1: Our guest today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is Professor Timothy Shannon of Gettysburg College. He's the chair of the history department there, uh, teaches American history, and we are going to talk to him today about his fascinating new book out with Harvard University Press titled Indian Captive Indian King, Peter Williamson in America and Britain. Tim, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Let's start with the basics here. Um, I'm guessing most of our readers do not know who Peter Williamson is. Frankly, until I learned about your work, I didn't know who Peter Williamson was. Um, Who is this guy? Who is Peter Williamson?
2: Sure. He's kind of a, uh, a best kept secret, I think, in early American history. Yeah. So if, if, if we're going to believe him, he is somebody who came to North America in the 1740s as a, a young man who was kidnapped off the streets of his native Aberdeen and sold into servitude in colonial Pennsylvania. And then he had this kind of picaresque Dickensian American <laughs> odyssey where he lived as an indentured servant he eventually acquired his freedom. He says that he married and acquired his own plantation on the Pennsylvania frontier, only then to be taken captive by Indians at the outset of the French and Indian or Seven Years' War, uh, that he escaped his captivity and then uh, en- enlisted in the British Army. He saw action in the opening years of the French and Indian War, was eventually taken prisoner by the French and ended up on a ship that carried him back to Britain. Where in the 1750s he published a captivity narrative of his time in uh, North America and then uh, made his way back to Aberdeen, was eventually arrested in Aberdeen as a charlatan, as an imposter, and uh, exiled from the city by its magistrates. And then he spent about 10 years trying to prove his identity in a series of lawsuits against those leaders of Aberdeen. Uh, we know him today uh, primarily because he published that narrative called French and Indian cruelty that went through several editions. And also because unlike any other Indian captive that I've ever encountered in my studies of early American history, he actually gave performances in which he reenacted his captivity. And so he became something of a celebrity in uh, Great Britain during the 1750s and 60s, eventually becoming known as an Indian king.
0: So How did you first discover this this character in the archive? I'm a grad student thinking about my future project. How do you discover someone like this?
2: Yes, Drew, it's the kind of thing where uh, if you you work in archives, you're always fortunate to trip over something, right? So it seems like the most interesting finds in the archives are often something you come across because you're looking at something else. And so the story of this book actually began almost 20 years ago when I um, was working at the John Carter Brown Library, a rare books library in Providence, Rhode Island. And at the time I was just trying to collect and examine images of Native Americans from the 18th century because I was trying to track the origins of a device called the pipe tomahawk, this combined tomahawk and smoking pipe that became popular in the 18th century fur trade. And I came across, across one such image And it was simply called a Delaware Indian. And it showed this person, apparently a Delaware Indian in Native American clothing, smoking one of these pipe tomacs. And I'd never seen this image before, which really struck me. I thought, you know, I'd been around the block. I'd seen pretty much every published image of a Native American from this era. And in tracking down that image, which it was in a um, English language translation of a French travel narrative of North America that was published in Dublin, Ireland in 1766. So you can imagine kind of the permutations uh, involved here, I eventually tracked that image to Williamson's narrative. It appeared in the fourth edition of his narrative. And so in finding his narrative, again, I was kind of surprised because I thought I was already conversant in all the Indian captivity narratives of this era, which I've been studying for some time. But um, his captivity narrative did not have an American edition. And so uh, this was something new under the sun for me. And in reading that narrative, I really got into his story and I became fascinated with this question of how much of this was fact and how much of it was fiction.
1: Now Tim, is the image you're talking about? That's the image on the cover of the book,
2: right? So Yes, that is that yeah. is the image on the cover of the book and it's there are several variations of right. it that appear. That are also in, on the inside of the book.
1: That's right. So um, we just we just uh, one of the things we like to do, Tim, is kind of tweet out a picture of, uh, of uh, oh, sure. the book. So so those of you who are on Twitter, go to Twitter and I tweeted out a picture of me holding Tim's book. Uh, that's the picture he's talking about. So this is this is a project, right, obviously about this really intriguing figure that no one knew about. But mm-hmm. you're also interested in sort of larger questions, right? You know, uh, Williamson is yes. a window for you into into what you know, how did what does he teach us about uh, the Atlantic world, which, of course, is the focus of our episode today? Sure, I
2: think uh, he, he can teach us quite a bit about the Atlantic world, because I think he's an example of uh, people I like to call kind of uh, plebeian travelers in the Atlantic world, uh, people who end up Traveling back and forth across the Atlantic who end up seeing a big part of the world, uh, usually because they're kind of swept into tides that are beyond their control. So in his case, it's this alleged kidnapping that brings him into the servant trade and carries him from Aberdeen, Scotland, all the way to Pennsylvania. And along the way, he's shipwrecked. Uh, He um, encounters all sorts of interesting experiences in North America when he's serving in the army. And then... um, his experiences as a soldier, I think, also give us kind of what we might call the worm's eye view of this Mm -hmm. major conflict in uh, not only North American history, but in Atlantic world history. The Seven Years' War is a big deal. You know, as we know, it kind of reshapes the continent of North America. And so um, Williamson is giving us that, that worm's eye view. I think there's oftentimes this view that people like him are victims of empire. They are the cannon fodder, for the British army, right? They are people who end up doing the back-breaking labor of colonialism. Uh, They are the victims of Indian captivities and hostilities with native peoples because they live on the frontier. But I think what's instructive about Williamson is he's showing us plebeian agency in all this, right? He's somebody who's making the empire his own, and he's certainly taking advantage of his experiences in it. And I was most interested in how he was kind of repackaging those images to tell his story when he returned to Britain.
1: Yeah. So this is a story not only of his life, right? But it's a story of of some larger questions, but it's also a story of kind of print culture. And there's so much, so many things going on here. Your book uh, and everybody who blurbs it and, and, you know, everything I hear about it, it's just sort of masterful in terms of its historical detective work. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of, uh, how you took this narrative. I even noticed the way you've been speaking today, right? Uh, Williamson claims this happened to right. him. Yes. Um, yes. And and what's, what's fascinating about it is, you know, you know, some of it's true, some of it's not, and you've done this kind of detective work. So let's, let's just take one example. Let's take, um, sure. you know, the, the captivity story, which is kind of, you know, a significant chunk of, of the narrative, right? Um, what yes. made you question the captivity narrative? And then how'd you, I think you call it at one point, a bald face lie, right? What? Yes. what t- walk us through this, just one example of you, the historian, kind of doing this kind of uh, investigative kind of work to prove whether or not this kind of stuff really happened to Williamson or not.
2: Sure, uh, so of course, this is where a lot of archival work comes in. The interesting thing about Williamson is you know he spends thirteen, fourteen years in North America, but he he doesn't really leave much of a footprint in the archives, yeah. and so. I, I think as historians, we can't really hold that against him because he's a, a fairly small, anonymous, insignificant figure. He doesn't hold office. He doesn't own property, that sort of thing. So he's not likely to get his name recorded in different places. Right, but right. the thing that struck me about his captivity narrative when I read it for the first time was that it it, it didn't pass my sniff test. Yeah. Uh, I was very familiar with other captivity stories from Pennsylvania during the uh, – era of the French and Indian War. And while many of the details in his narrative had a kind of an element of truth to them, for example, he appeared to be very familiar with the geography of frontier Pennsylvania. Uh, There were elements to the story that did not ring true, such as he claims that he was taken captive in October of 1754, and he um, made his way home in, in January of 1755, basically a, a three-month captivity. Right. And that is exactly one year too early for the captivities that occur in Pennsylvania at the start of the French and Indian War because the Indians begin raiding the frontier after the defeat of Braddock's army at mm-hmm. the in, uh in the summer of 1755. And so that didn't smell right. And then there were elements, too, when he describes some of the tortures that he witnesses other captives enduring that were not consistent with what we know about how Native Americans dealt with captives during this era. Uh, Also, um, the lack of evidence to corroborate his story was striking because he claimed that when he returned to uh, uh, to the east, when he when he returned to where he had been taken from, that he went to Philadelphia and actually, had an interview with the governor of Pennsylvania at the time, and gave testimony before the Pennsylvania Assembly, and none of that is recorded in the uh, records of those offices. So, um, in that case, the lack of evidence seemed pretty damning uh, for him. It raised this very interesting question then of you know, well, why fabricate a right, captivity? Right. And 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 that again uh, becomes a very interesting component of the story because other elements of his American Odyssey definitely pan out. His, um, he was shipwrecked off the coast of Cape May. He was, in fact, uh, purchased by a fellow Scotsman as an indentured servant. And his time in the military, uh, what he describes about that um, is corroborated by a lot of other evidence. Yet he chooses to make this fictional captivity narrative the centerpiece of his story when he returns home. And why does he do that? I think he's doing that because he's giving the people what they want. You know, he's, he's part of this first wave of British soldiers to return to Great Britain at the outset of the French-Indian War. Braddock's army is defeated in uh, July of 1755, but in that defeat, it's also dispersed. And so there are no veterans or prisoners of war returning to Britain from that experience to tell their tale. Williamson is taken at the fall of Oswego in August of 1756. He's part of a group of 1,100 prisoners of war who are repatriated to Britain. And so he's uh, he's part of this first tide, this first vanguard of eyewitnesses to come back and tell their stories in, uh, in in Britain. And I think he realizes that the public's appetite has been whetted for stories about Native Americans because of these two dramatic defeats of the British army on the North American frontier. So as he's making his way back to Aberdeen, the way he's going to distinguish himself from other uh, right. returning veteran soldiers who've been cut adrift is he can tell a story about Indian captivity.
1: How much though, how much too? I mean, yeah, how much is this kind of, uh, you know, part of his kind of commercial or his economic, you know, he, he, he's, he's going around, uh, he's going around telling the story. He's dressing up like an Indian. I mean, he needs, he needs this background, right. To sustain himself uh, in this. uh, Yeah. Yes. And he's part in that sense. He's also
2: part of this plebeian tradition and Brenton, at this time of what I dis- uh, describe as disguise and impersonation, yeah. generally speaking, uh, poor people, laboring people who are stuck in a bad situation. It might be a woman in a bad marriage. It might be uh, a man who has a bad boss or master. They'll use disguise as a way of gaining mobility. So, you know, right. we, we hear these stories about women who disguise themselves as men to join the army and, and, and leave home yeah. that way. Yeah. And and Williamson at the time, when he returns to Aberdeen, he He's described as a stroller, which today we might translate as a confidence man, somebody uh-huh. who's, who's kind of on the move and is uh, taking advantage of people's gullibility to defraud them, to extract alms from them and, and that sort of thing. And I think he his kind of commercial entrepreneurial orientation reflects that background in that willingness to use dissembling, to use uh, impersonation and disguise as a way of kind of making your way forward in the world.
1: Yeah. Real quick, back to the back to the um, your sort of first reading of this captivity narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Did a red flag go off immediately or, you know, was there, you know, you immediately first time you read it, it seems like this can't be right. Um, What was the relationship between, you know, you obviously being a, a very experienced historian looking at this stuff for the first time? Right. In a way, maybe a grad student wouldn't pick up. Sorry, Drew. Sorry, Drew. Um, You know, but but to what extent was it kind of, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. This isn't right. Versus kind of, okay, this doesn't seem right. And then kind of like a domino effect, right? You start doing research and, oh my gosh, now I don't trust anything. You know, tell us how you kind of navigated that whole thing.
2: Sure. It was, it was more of the latter. It was a gradual uh, kind of disenchantment that I was having with with, with, his story. Um, one of the first things I did after reading his narrative was I began asking around to other historians of this era saying, Hey, have you, have you read this narrative? Yeah. Do you know anything about it? And, um, and very few of my colleagues in, in North America did know about it. And the few that did kind of shrugged it off and said, yeah, you know, he's, uh, it, 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 it's a fabrication. And right, so right. You know, don't, don't take it seriously. But there was so much else in the narrative, particularly the story of his kidnapping And then all this time that he spends in the army that struck me as worth investigating, because um, even if you extracted the captivity narrative from the tale, you know, there was still these elements of kind of, you know, geez, was he really shipwrecked? Was he really kidnapped? And um, in pursuing those questions, that's when I figured out that there was really so much here to unpack, because. Uh, initially when I started working on him I thought I'll get a good article out of this. This is yeah. you know this is an interesting story to tell. But when I began investigating his kidnapping I found out that in the National Archives of Scotland there are these voluminous files on his two lawsuits in which he was yeah. attempting to prove his identity and to then to sue the magistrates who had exiled him from the city and ultimately to sue the merchants who had invested in the voyage that brought him to North America and reading those um affidavits and depositions uh really helped me unpack the story of his yeah. life before his alleged Indian captivity.
1: Yeah, and those it seems like those really kind of made it a book project, right? The availability yes, of those Yes, yes, and there was a
2: lot of time there was a lot of time spent in Edinburgh right. uh, in the National Archives of
1: Scotland and the National Library of Scotland going over those materials. Now, so what I'm hearing, if I'm if I'm listening to if I understand you correctly, you know, my, my initial, I was initially going to ask you, have there been other historians who have taken this work at face value? Right. But, but yes. now I'm, now I'm thinking I may ask you a, a sort of different question because I get the sense that like most of the historians immediately dismiss this thing. And you were saying, well, yes, but there actually is some truth to some of his, some of his accounts yes. too. Um, you know, could you talk about that? I mean, is it have there been other his first of all, have there been other historians uh, who have just simply used him as a primary source uh, without sort of uh, debunking anything?
2: Yeah, um, there have. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead. OK. And uh, in, in, there's a real divide here between historians in Britain, particularly Scotland, who have been familiar with him for a long time and historians in North America okay. who have been less familiar with him. So, um, historians in North America who have used him have usually, um, studied him in the context of the servant trade of the 18th century, because his is probably the best documented case of a kidnapping into servitude in the 18th century. So, um, his, his narrative does pop up in the footnotes of people who are writing about the kidnapping of children to servitude. Uh, the people who've studied uh, who've studied Indian captivity in North America generally have ignored him. Uh, his narrative eventually finds its way into print in North America in the late 1790s and the early 19th century. It's often included in compendiums of captivity tales from that uh, from that era, but um, it never makes its way into what we might call the canon of American literature uh, when it comes to captivity stories. He's not as famous as, you know, Daniel Boone or Mary Rowlandson or Mary Jameson, uh, folks like that. Uh, In Scotland, the story's different because uh, his story remains in print for a long time in Scotland. Uh, After his death, it's republished as kind of a children's adventure tale. It's actually picked up by abolitionists who publish it in order to encourage sympathy for the anti-slavery cause. Uh, And the only biography that's ever been written of him, full-length biography, is by a Scottish author of true crime stories who published <laughs> it in the late 20th century. And, okay. and that author took Williamson at his word and yeah. so assumed okay. that his, his uh, captivity tale was true and didn't attempt to do any kind of um, archival digging on him in, in North America. And that's, So that's something new. That I'm doing. But I, I did have an interesting encounter after um, talking about Williamson at a conference once. I had a fellow come up to me from the audience uh, who was a native Aberdonian. Mm. And he said, you know, when I was growing up, we learned about him in grade school. Wow. You know, he was a k- kind of a local historical figure of note. And you can imagine how schoolchildren might be very impressed by his story. Oh, absolutely. And so uh, but I, I, again, it's usually in the context of his kidnapping and Kind of anticipating what becomes the, the famous novel "Kidnapped" by Robert Louis Stevenson.
1: Right, right. So the title of your book, Tim, is "Indian Captive, Indian King." Uh, we've we've spent a lot of time here talking about uh, captivity, his, his so-called captivity, if you will. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, tell us about Indian King. What is why is that in the title? How does how does how is Williamson or how does he become an Indian King? What does that phrase mean?
2: Yes, well, it's uh, it's a very interesting phrase that gets attached to him during the latter part of his life right. when you know he's returned to Great Britain and ultimately he settles in Edinburgh, and he he does some interesting things as uh, urban tradesman and entrepreneur. He basically um, gains control of the means of production of his celebrity. So you know there were other Indian captives who returned to Great Britain you know, from um, time in colonial America, and usually they publish their stories in as these narratives as a way of kind of raising some money, but then they slipped anonymously back into life. Williamson does something that reminds me of what a, a sports star might do when he retires from the game. You know, he he buys a bar or a restaurant so that he can continue to be a famous person in his adopted hometown, and so Williamson um, opens up a coffee house in Edinburgh where he displays supposed artifacts from north america uh and he buys a printing press and he goes into business as a printer and so he becomes this uh urban tradesman in a city that's very famous for having its share of eccentric characters and along the way um people begin calling him uh variations of this term an indian king and clearly they they mean it is kind of satire as a sort of nickname and that the term has its roots in um, these visitations that various Indian delegations made to Great Britain, starting with Pocahontas, you know, all the way back in the early 17th century. But in the 18th century, the four Indian kings in 1710, a Cherokee delegation in 1730, another Cherokee delegation in the 1760s. And these Indian kings, you know, became objects of celebrity and celebration whenever they visited uh, places like London. And so Williamson, when his local friends and uh, other characters in uh, Edinburgh begin calling him an Indian King, I think they're saying that he's somebody they, they appreciate him as a teller of tall tales. Yeah. They appreciate him as a fabulous uh, somebody who has certainly seen a big part of the world, but who has come back to tell his tale and we can't really entirely believe it, but it's kind of fun to believe it. Yeah. Uh, and so uh There are a couple of of poets working in Edinburgh who refer to him first as an Indian king. They call him king of the Mohawk nation because Uh the Mohawks were allies of the British. Uh, And then towards the end of his life, there are uh, people who refer to him as king of the Cherokees because the Cherokee now have become significant in uh, British history because of their alliance uh, with Great Britain during the American Revolution. Uh, And and Williamson, of course, invites this by – Continuing to tell his tale and kind of weave it in new ways that often contradict the captivity story. So in 1768, he publishes a book called The Travels of Peter Williamson, Mm -hmm. which is really just a a Frankenstein's monster of plagiarized passages (laughs) from other, uh, other travel narratives in North America. Um, But he's kind of presenting himself in this as a as a gentleman traveler, you know, uh, an Indian captive is somebody who's poor, somebody who's victimized, somebody who's on the edge of the frontier and the edge of society. But an Indian king, you know, is a cosmopolitan traveler who's gone out and lived among the Indians and traveled with them and kind of become an anthropologist, almost a participant observer. And that's how he's cultivating that reputation as an Indian king.
1: So his story, as the editions go on, his his story changes. It's like yes, it does to you fit know, his he, circumstances. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. The uh, it, his uh, captivity narrative goes through six editions in ten years, and there are really only minor uh, changes in, in the story he tells. There, you know, at one point he drops the identification of himself as a disbanded soldier from the front page because. I, I think that's not really paying off for him yeah. because <laughs> yeah. disbanded soldiers are, you know, uh, people of menace in the society. Right. But um, when he publishes the travels of Peter Williamson, he he references his captivity, but he blatantly contradicts it. You know, he it makes it sound like he. Did not spend three months captive among Indians who were torturing him and beating him. No, he's he lived among the Indians since his infancy, he says, you know, and he traveled around the continent. He saw Niagara Falls with them. He learned about Indian medicine and that sort of thing. And so his uh, captivity in the travels of Peter Williamson becomes more like, um, you know, an apprenticeship among the Indians of North America.
1: Right, right. Well, our time is just about up here, Tim, but we always like to ask our guests, uh, especially those who are authors, if they're working on any new and exciting projects. How about you? Are you uh, do you have another project in the works? Sure. Well,
2: I'm just getting underway, I think, with what will be the next big project. And it's going to focus on Benjamin Franklin's writings about and interactions with Native Americans over the long course of his career. Uh, I've been interested uh, in Franklin for a long time. I've worked in, on him in other capacities in the past, but I think he's pretty unique among you know, the founding generation because not only does he encounter real Indians when he's working as a treaty commissioner for the government of Pennsylvania in the 1750s, uh, and he's as a printer, he's publishing Indian treaties in the 1740s, 1750s, but he also writes about Indians quite a bit, even when he's living in London and in Paris. Uh, He's using Indians as allegories or as foils when he's writing uh, editorials in Britain, for example, on behalf of the patriot cause. And so I think by unpacking what Franklin has to say about Indians over the long course of his life, we can begin to kind of trace some of the intellectual heritage and development of these various ideas about Native Americans, where they come from, what the nature of their society is like, and what place they're going to occupy in the new nation so we're just getting started with that john but i think that will be the next big
1: one yeah well we'll be looking for that definitely um and try to catch you kind of out there on the conference circuit trying to try your stuff out right sure um sure well our guest today has been timothy shannon he is the author of indian captive indian king peter williamson in america and britain harvard university press 2018 Go get it. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookstores and everything. It's a fascinating read and a wonderful example of how a historian works um, with the detective work and the investigative research and so forth. Tim, thanks so much for taking some time out of your day and joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me on the program,
1: John and Drew. All right. Have a great day. So, Drew, we had maybe one of our first... Serious Native American historians on the program today, right? What What is your reaction?
0: It felt good. It felt like I finally felt like I could keep up.
1: Yeah, uh, Shannon is Shannon is just a prolific author, and all of his stuff is just so so good. I really appreciate the way too he writes monographs, but he also writes textbooks. Uh, he's written textbooks on the Atlantic World and Colonial America all from uh, a sort of liberal arts institution, right, at at Gettysburg College, and I've known him to be a very sort of gifted public speaker and communicator of history as well.
0: Yeah, I'm also especially struck by this kind of mode of uh, telling the Atlantic story. You know, he kept using that word, uh, worm's eye view, that term worm's eye view, and I kept thinking about, um, as he was talking about this very curious individual who tells this very unique story. I kept thinking about, uh, Esther Wheelwright in our episode with Ann Little. As yeah, another way to get a worm's eye view into, into Atlantic history. So I, I, am really in part of it's because I, you know, as I envision my future project, my future dissertation project, I, you know, I, I, I like this idea of the worm's eye view as a, as yeah. an approach to, to talking about empire in, in North America, yeah. especially.
1: Yeah. I, I love those kind of books. I love obviously Ann Little's book. I love this book. You know, also, it's this kind of this kind of history is near and dear to my heart. You know, Philip Vickers Fithian didn't have the sort of transatlantic experience or even the transnational experience that someone like Wheelwright did going back and forth between Canada and the colonies or obviously didn't have the experience of, of a Williamson. But, you know, this idea of kind of connecting these larger Atlantic patterns, these macro storylines with flesh and blood, right, real life a real individual, those books, I just, I just eat up. You know, I, I, I look for any opportunity to read and and this is, this is a a real page turner, you know, especially we didn't get a chance to talk about the trial where he tried to prove that he was kidnapped, you know, the way he constructs himself as an Indian King, uh, but also early in his life, there's a lot of stuff in here about the enlightenment coffee house culture in uh, Edinburgh consumerism Um, again, Shannon is one of our best kind of uh, chroniclers of the Atlantic world in this way. A lot of the Atlantic world literature historians, right. They write in such macro ways, right. right? you know, they're flying at 30,000 feet and you don't really get the true stories and it's not their fault. There's just not a lot of, Kind of stories, you know, even Shannon said, right. He started this as a, uh, as just an article. And then, you know, he found this, uh, this, these trial transcripts in the archives in Scotland. And it just turned into a, a, a really great kind of, I don't know if he called a micro history or a biography or yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed our episode today. I know we certainly did talking with Timothy Shannon about Peter Williamson. Thanks for listening And
0: as always,
1: may your way of improvement lead home.
0: This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Timothy Shannon. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling. And your host, as always, is John Fia.